in church, if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 is where we will be this morning, Acts chapter 14. Examples are necessary in life. They're good. They're needed in all areas of life, in all kinds of areas of life. Uh, last week, uh, thanks to many, the, of the, well, I say many, the generosity of this church, my wife and I, we were able to spend a week in Hawaii for our 20th anniversary, and one of those days, uh, we went ziplining through the jungle of Kauai, and it was a blast. There was the longest line that we traversed down was 250 feet in the air and 900 feet long, and that process involved us running and jumping off of a one platform extending in the air and then uh, rapidly kind of ziplining downhill to another small platform where a very small guide was waiting to literally catch us with a homemade brake system that he was operating. And after he explained all this and explained our harness and put it all on, the guide asked, the guide asked who wanted to go first. And you can imagine that uh, who stepped forward. Not, not me, nobody actually. And... Um, and he expected that. Honestly, he knew that. He set it up that way. And um, so he offered himself, as he always did on every trip, he says, as an example. And he went down the line before us so that we could see, that all of us could understand that death wasn't awaiting us at the other end of that platform. Examples are necessary. They're helpful, especially in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul knew this. When the Apostle Paul heard, upon hearing the, the difficulty, the discouragement that Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, was experiencing, he wrote to him in 2 Timothy. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he reminded this young pastor that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Difficulty, Paul says, is common to the Christian life, brothers and sisters. But the the call, he said, to Timothy was one of perseverance. He says, but as for you, continue, persevere in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In the midst of Timothy's discouragement, Paul called him to persevere in the faith by walking in the wisdom of His salvation found in Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And he did this, though, only after Paul himself offered himself as an example for Timothy to follow. He says in verse 10, You, however, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, he said, the Lord rescued me. Paul is saying to his discouraged son in the faith, I know this journey of the Christian life you're on is difficult. I know the end of the zip line can be frightening. There's a lot of unknown to it. It's difficult and at times it can be discouraging. But Timothy... You must persevere just as I have done because God is faithful to see you to the end, brother. Christian, do you often feel the difficulty of the Christian life? Of life itself? 
And when discouragement grabs hold of you, what will sustain your perseverance? What examples do you look to in order to believe the truth that God will see you to the end? Begin with this verse from 2 Timothy this morning because this particular example Paul offers of himself to encourage Timothy includes the events which we're going to study in Acts chapter 14 this morning. The details of the persecution and the sufferings which happened to Paul, he said, at Iconium, at Antioch, at Lystra, those very events are what's before us in Acts chapter 14. What we learn in Acts chapter 14 this morning is that because of God's grace, we persevere with joy in light of the certainty of God's kingdom. That's what Paul tells us. Because of God's grace, we persevere with joy in light of the certainty of God's kingdom. I hope I can show that to you from Acts chapter 14. And Acts chapter 14, it's located within the middle of <clears throat> the first missionary movement, we might say, that began with Paul and Barnabas being called and sent out from the church at Antioch beginning back in chapter 13. And a lot has transpired in this one chapter, chapter 13. We've learned how the Holy Spirit initiates the missionary task. We've learned how the Holy Spirit works in concert with the local church in calling and sending missionaries. We've seen this. We've learned over and over again how the proclamation of the gospel must be at the center of the missionary task. We've also seen, though, that at nearly every turn, difficulty, opposition, suffering are inevitable. And because of this, we learned this morning, and we saw it last week, two weeks ago as well, as Sean preached, that perseverance is essential to the Christian life. Now, our text this morning possesses particular application concerning the task of cross-cultural missionary work both for the individual going and the church who sins. The reality, the difficulty, and the joy of, great, of the Great Commission are set before us this morning. But this passage also, as referenced by Paul in 2 Timothy, carries much broader application in terms of perseverance for the Christian life. It offers every single one of us an example of perseverance and its necessary place in the Christian life, which we must all take part in and follow this example. So I'm going to walk by way of this text, four little headings and movements, and we'll begin in the first seven verses with persevering in the Word of Grace. Persevering in the Word of Grace is how we begin. Now Paul's unwavering commitment to his missionary strategy that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks is again really made evident in verse 1. The last time Paul entered a synagogue to preach to the Jews, it resulted in him being persecuted, having to flee the city. And now, upon entering the very next town of Iconium, what do we see Paul doing? Paul again enters the synagogue to preach the same message of grace that got him thrown out of the last city. And he does that first to the Jews here. Verse 1, Now at Iconium, they, Barnabas and Saul and Paul, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks, they believed, the text says. 
Paul, he left the major city of Antioch, Pisidia, and he's headed southeast about 90 miles to Iconium, a large, influential Greek city. And while Paul's strategy in no way minimizes the, uh, we might say, the small towns, it does emphasize, as we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, the strategic nature of large cities. All throughout the book of Acts, the apostle strategically situates himself in large, influential cities, not much different than San Diego. Places full of immorality, full of pagan worship, and yet full of great gospel potential and reach. But no matter what, Paul, what city Paul enters, his method remains the same. He preaches the gospel. And he begins in the organized places of Jewish worship. And the worship here, and the, and the result here, is that many Jews and Greeks believe by responding to the message of God's grace in Jesus. Now, we, we should consider this verse here, verse 1, and the fact that many believed after his clear teaching. We should consider this verse alongside the wonderful but strong statement that we dealt with two weeks ago from verses chapter 13, verse 48, regarding God's sovereign election in salvation. There, the text states explicitly that God saves all whom He appoints for eternal life. That those whom He appointed in that city, those are the ones who believe, He says. Very clearly. That's absolutely true. And yet chapter 14, verse 1, reminds us that the instrument that God uses to call all those He's appointed to eternal life is our preaching of the gospel. We know not whom God has appointed for salvation, whom He will call to Himself. What we do know is the means by which He has promised to call all of those whom He has appointed to eternal life. And that is our faithful proclamation of the gospel, your faithful proclamation of the gospel. So our calling is not the business of trying to determine whom God appointed for eternal life. Our task as the church, and you individually, is to be the instrument of proclamation for the Lord Jesus. We proclaim, we share Jesus, and God saves. Many believed, as we see here. And note, and note that not all, though, respond this way in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So while many believe, some rise up in opposition, seeking to distort the message they'd received, or as Paul says, poison their minds, a strong statement here. They sought to embitter the minds of the people towards this message. So how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this? Well, they continue, they persevere, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, it says, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Their response, they bore witness to the gospel for a long time. The word of God's grace, it says here. And God bore witness to their message by granting supernatural signs and wonders by their hands. And this merely divided the city further. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So more believe here. More are saved here. And more rise in opposition here. When the opposition is ratcheted up, <coughs> Paul and Barnabas are forced to flee. In verse 5, it says, When attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, they're, cons- they're coming together now, they're organizing themselves to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. 
So notice again for the third time in these opening verses how preaching the gospel is at the heart of the missionary task. In the face of opposition and persecution, these brothers persevered in the task of proclaiming the message of Jesus as we must. But why such strong opposition? That's a good question. You have to really be enraged to want to pick up stones and throw at someone with an intention to kill them. And these guys won't let it go. A bit further down in verse 19, we're going to see that this same group, they're going to end up following Paul and Barnabas nearly 150 miles to Lystra to carry out this desire to stone Paul. They're going to do it. There's no Uber. There's no rental car service here. The average travel was about 20 miles a day. It's about at least a week's journey if they were at it every day. And all of this, they were in the pursuit to stone these two brothers. What in the world had raged them so much? Grace. Because they bore witness to the word of God's grace, verse 3 says. Grace is offensive to mankind. Grace is offensive to the self-righteous. Because grace puts everyone on the same horizontal plane. Grace smashes pride. It smashes self-righteousness. Grace removes all moral distinctions in terms of salvation before God. The religious leader and the prostitute are both equally morally bankrupt before a holy God. And yet both have access to God by grace alone through faith. Not in any achievement, not in any status, not in any effort in and of ourselves. You see, grace removes hierarchy, which we like to create. Grace dismantles all self-justification. No one is righteous. No, not one, Paul says. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23-24. That's the message of the Gospel. God's grace. And that message divides. But that message also unites. It is that which establishes. It is that which binds the church together. Christian believing, embracing, resting in the message of grace is essential for perseverance. Pride, self-righteousness is a dead-end street. You want to exhaust yourself with a load that you cannot carry? Try and build your Christian life on your own back. Try to build it on anything other than the foundation of grace. To live a life of self-righteousness is hard. It's hypocritical. You will exhaust yourself trying to appear a certain way while in the same time trying to appear a certain way, you will be absolutely hiding your true self from everyone. The Gospel is the message of grace. Faithful pastor, theologian Tim Keller who entered into glory two days ago, famously said, quote, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel message. That is the word of grace 
that Paul preaches here. That is the word of grace that enrages these men. And that is the word of grace that will have to carry us if we're going to persevere. Secondly, though, they persevered with clarity here in verses 8 to 18. Luke, Luke's account, he, he gets more detailed in the first seven verses. It's somewhat of a summary. And now he kind of moves with more detail from Iconium to Lystra, some 150 miles away. And the cultural difference of these cities is just as far apart. The people of Lystra were characterized as rustic and even uh, uncivilized. Commentators speak of them being superstitious and gullible, being their stereotype. And that seems, we don't know for sure, but that seems to fit the context of the story that we run into right here. And what takes place is the result of the restoration of a, of a, of a man lame from birth, paralleling the, uh, the healing, if you remember back from Acts chapter 3. And here, like there, this miraculous healing of this man affords Paul the opportunity to speak with clarity concerning the gospel message. Verse 8, it says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. This was a well-known man. They knew this man had, had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. Now Paul again wastes no time getting back to the work of proclaiming the message of Jesus. And as he's speaking, his message lands on the ears of this known man who's been lame from birth. And while we're not told like what evidence Paul observed here, it says that when he saw that he had faith to, to, to be healed. We don't know what that means. We don't know what evidence he saw. That The text says that upon seeing this evidence, though, Paul challenged this man with a loud voice in front of everyone, as a public spectacle, to express that very faith by getting up. And the text says he does that. In fact, he sprang or he jumped up is what some translations have, making certain he had been completely healed. This was no, uh, the man was completely healed. He had been all his life not walking and now he's jumping and leaping and very clearly. But the people respond to this in a very unexpected way in verse 14. In verse 11, in verse 11 look at it. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Speaking in their heart language, the people assign literally deity to Paul and Barnabas, resulting in a spontaneous, almost fast, orchestrated outpouring of an attempted worship of these two men. This is nuts. What is happening here? Well, there's a, a Latin poet named Orvid who records a, a legend that's recorded from this city in the past of so-called gods visiting the city distinguished as mortals seeking lodging. According to this popularized legend, after being refused hospitality by many, eventually an elderly couple welcomed uh, them into their home, causing their house to be transformed into a, a temple, so-called, and then they became priests. But judgment, however, was said to have fallen on all those who did not welcome them. It seems, at least many think, this legend and the fear of maybe repeating this legend is probably what's motivating their actions. There has to be something like this going on. 
I mean, it's one thing for these dudes to respond this way. It's another thing for the priest outside to be like, cool, I'll bring the oxen and the garland. Right? Something's got to be going on. When Paul and Barnabas, though, realize what's taking place, remember, though, they're speaking in their native tongue here. They would have had none. They said they have none of this. Verse 14, when the apostle, when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out. Right? It's a, a gesture of blasphemy. Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They rush out into the crowd to clarify things. And this clarity comes by way of Paul's second sermon in the book of Acts. And importantly, the structure, and really the content and the structure of Paul's message here is different than what he preached in Antioch. Paul's not preaching to a Jewish audience here who share a biblical storyline of belief in the promised Messiah. Instead, similar to what we're going to see in Acts chapter 17, Paul, he, he begins, he, he kind of begins further back, or we might say he begins deeper down, addressing the universal problem of idolatry and false worship, that which is on display in their actions in front of him. Fifteen men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, are, we also are men he says, like, of like nature with you. We're human, just like you guys. Don't worship us. That's not all he said, though. And then he said, we also, we bring you good news. Though we are mere men, we bring you a divine message, the gospel, Paul says. Now, what's recorded here is very succinct. We need to make that observation. And in that sense, we could say that it's, it's lacking in what we have here in front of us. We don't find any reference here to Jesus in Paul's sermon here. We don't find any reference to the cross. We don't find any, any reference to the resurrection. If we want to see kind of a, a fuller understanding of the way Paul approaches this, we'll see it in the book of in Acts chapter 17, which he definitely deals with the resurrection. So perhaps Paul's sermon included much more, but Luke, in summarizing it, left it out. That's possible. It's also possible and probably likely that Paul's proclamation was cut short by stones that began to fly at his head by the Jews who follow him from Antioch, as recorded in verse 19, we're going to see in just a moment. We don't know exactly. But what is listed here is very important and especially clear. And it is important to see the way Paul engaged these people. Verse 15 again, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So the futility of vain worship and idolatry is the focus here. The call of the gospel message demands turning from idols to the living God. Repentance is very much what Paul is setting out here. Turning from every alternate object of devotion to the living God who created all things is what Christian conversion entails. Is what becoming a Christian entails. Becoming a Christian is not adding a bit of Jesus to your thinking. It's not involving yourself in mere religious activities. Jesus is not a seasoning you get to sprinkle over your life. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He's the divine Son through whom all things were created. Jesus is the only living God and the one whom we owe our allegiance to. Becoming a Christian is a matter of the heart. It is a worship question. Speaking to the 
Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, speaking of their conversion in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter one verse nine, Paul says, "You, he's, quote, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." There is no Christianity without a turning from and a turning to. And no one is exempt from this. In past generations, verse verse 16, in past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God's unique relationship with Israel, he's saying, in no way allows anyone to claim ignorance regarding the existence of God. God was not left without testimony or witness before the nations. God's existence and His nature, particularly here, His goodness, is evident to every single person just by the mere fact you live in this world. It's experienced by everyone we enjoy the benefits of living in His creation. And the pleasures of this life should encourage us to believe in a beneficent God. But it doesn't. And therefore, to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator really does become the essence of what sin is. Paul begins his most robust explanation of the gospel in the book of Romans from this very point. Romans chapter 1 verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their worship and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The existence of God and even certain aspects of His nature are evident to everyone by the simple fact we breathe in the air in this life and we live in this world. The creation speaks to the necessity of a powerful, wise creator. So why doesn't everybody believe that? Paul says, because mankind suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and sin. In our sin, we substitute God, the creator, with the worship of his creation. A blasphemous thing. Well, thank goodness we don't live in such a pagan, idolatrous culture where we craft idols, or where we believe in superstitious things like Zeus and Hermes. While modernization may have moved us from carving statues and bowing before them, it has no power to transform our idolatrous hearts. Listen, the Greek culture, with its pantheon of gods in the past, or if we want to pick on The land of India today with its plethora of deities pales in comparison to the idolatry of modern Western culture. Our idols are everywhere. They're all over magazine covers. 
commercials on television, billboards as we drive down the road, social media advertisements, Instagram posts, and TikTok videos. Our culture is driven by the idolatrous worship of self, evidenced by the insatiable desire for freedom, success, acceptance, notoriety, and sexual expression. And the call of the gospel that Paul gives to these ancient, pagan, superstitious, simple-minded, we might say, people, is the same call that's in our lap as well. We must turn from the idols of our hearts and turn to Jesus. We must answer the call to follow Jesus, but not apart from picking up our own crosses and going through our own death of ourselves. Every person in this room, beginning with me, has a worship problem. And I know that because every person in this room, beginning with me, has a sin problem. If we worship God the Creator rightly and truly, we would function rightly and truly as His creation. Without sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, your biggest problem is not outside of you. No matter how difficult this life may be, no matter how bad the circumstances are stacked up against you, all those things can be real. Your biggest problem is not outside of you. It is your sinful, idolatrous heart. You need to see that your desire for freedom, for success, for notoriety, your desire to be accepted, to be made much of, for your desire to express your sexual expression in all kinds of ways, and on and on and on. The things that drive you are mere symptoms of a heart that needs the transforming power of the gospel, that needs God's grace that's only found in Jesus. And as Christians, we must continue to do ongoing battle with our hearts. The Reformers spoke of our hearts as idol factories. We can maybe think about and get a hold of one idol and recognize it and repent of it, but guess what? Our heart is active until the day we see Jesus crafting new ones. We must do battle with our hearts by our daily ongoing filling of our hearts with Jesus, the right and only true object of our worship. There's clarity here in the text, Paul says, in terms of idolatry and the call of the gospel upon the heart and worship. But thirdly, there's also this persevering through suffering. As I mentioned earlier, the Jews in Iconium were so enraged by the gospel message, they traveled some 150 miles here to to literally kill Paul. Through Paul's actions, through Paul's words, his worldview, we might say, his outlook pertaining to suffering is put on full display for us. This is where we really see exactly what he meant by his words he was speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We see here in verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, we shouldn't read this as Paul like being some sort of superhero, like the rocks just bounced off him. Like he got hit and he fell down, but he just hopped up. Like, that's all y'all got? No. 
We shouldn't even read this as Paul not needing great assistance from these disciples due to this. Paul outlines the details and the, the, the difficulty of all of his stripes and wounds and things in the book of Corinthians. Go read it. Paul was really stoned here. Paul was really pelted with real rocks in the same manner which took the life of Stephen, which killed him. Luke, though, is not interested in detailing Paul's injuries because Luke is concerned with Paul's unwavering conviction regarding suffering and its impact it had on Paul's gospel message. Notice the language again in verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, I mean, you just wonder what was happening there. Just imagine that scene. If the people stoning Paul believed him to be dead, what must the disciples have believed as they approached his body after being drugged out of the city? No, no, no doubt bloody and dirty. And as they stood over Paul, we don't actually know. But I can tell you this, they most certainly didn't think or didn't expect what was going to happen next. In verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Hey, if seeing Paul get up alive and then on the next day head to Derby was shocking enough, upon arriving in Derby, Paul just picks up where he left off. Preaching the same message which just got him nearly killed. What are the unwavering commitment to the gospel. And, and if that isn't crazy enough, Paul then returns to the very place where this whole thing started. It's like, go somewhere else, man. What's wrong with Paul? And one of the stones, you know, kind of made some permanent damage in Paul's head? No. One of the stones that actually sunk deep into his soul. Paul is merely here expressing an action as he does in words in Acts 20, 24 where he states, for I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There it is again. We must not confuse Paul's actions, Paul's words, as some form, as some have concluded, of some form of self-hatred here on the part of Paul. He hated his life, he hated what he was doing, so he just crazily just walked around as a martyr waiting for someone to take it. No, Paul's life was guided by an inexpressible joy and a love and a gratitude and a devotion and a dependence upon Jesus. And this deep dependence upon Jesus' church resulted in his labor and devotion to the church. Notice again the irreplaceable role of the local church in terms of the Great Commission. I've said it before. I'll keep setting it out in front of you all over the book of Acts. Paul is willing to risk his life for the sake of the gospel in seeing churches started and then seeing those churches that he started strengthened. And his message he has for them is one of perseverance. But his message of perseverance is not some sort of like Rocky Balboa speech 
like persevere for the sake of perseverance, just toughen up and be strong. No, this is gospel perseverance in light of a kingdom reality. Look at what he says. He says, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and look what he did. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Christianity entails a certainty about entering the kingdom of God. But our entrance into the kingdom of God comes through many trials, many tribulations, many hardships, he says. And this kingdom reality is what, is what informs our understanding of suffering and perseverance. For our King, Jesus, entered into glory through a life of indescribable suffering upon the cross. The pathway to glory for the King of glory was paved on the road to Golgotha. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. Jesus is the eternal King of glory because He was willing to become the suffering Son of God. Suffering was not a distraction to the life of Jesus, brothers and sisters. Suffering was central and effective in accomplishing our salvation. Therefore, we should not be shocked or confused when it comes upon us. And we should allow it to do what it did for Paul. To teach us dependence upon Jesus. Paul said, I count my life of no value. If I'm honest with you, that is an extremely convicting statement. I count my life of great value. And there's a good way to think about that, but there's also a sinful way. And I'm talking about the sinful way. I spend lots of money. We spend lots of money, energy, time trying to order things for the benefit of ourselves. We value our life a whole lot. And I know that because when things get difficulty, when things get difficult, when discouragement comes, when trials happen, when suffering happens, I tend, my heart tends to retreat spiritually, not lean in spiritually. Beloved, it's through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. We can interpret that, exegete that, turn that statement upside down and up the other. And guess what it means? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We persevere in suffering through our dependence upon Christ. And when this happens, we also persevere with joy as we see here at the end. These final verses, we return to the scene we began with in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, that started this whole thing. Paul and Barnabas, they go back before their sending church at Antioch. And given all that's transpired in this two chapters now, they have a report to give. As we noted back then, the missionary task is a church task. While only two physically went, or you could say three with, with Mark, the entire church was involved. They were praying, they were fasting, they laid hands on, they sent them out, they're supporting them. And we know this because Paul and Barnabas now present their report, not just to a few leaders. It says they gather the whole church so they'll hear it. The church is no doubt eager to hear from these, these people they so dearly love what's going on. 
And this report is telling. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. What a beautiful way to describe being sent out on mission. They were commended by the church to the grace of God for the work they had to fulfill. What a beautiful thing. Verse 27, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They remained no little time with the disciples. Their report is this. God is at work through our faithfulness, church. God is at work. That was the report. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Hearts had been changed by the gospel. Churches had been planted. Leaders raised up. And the gospel is going forth to the nations just as God said. That's the report. And it's a report of joy. But I couldn't help just reflect this week considering everything that's not explicitly mentioned in that report. Think about all the hardships. The confrontation with Bar-Jesus, the false prophet. The relational tension with John that caused him to go in separate ways. The threat and then eventual stoning of Paul when he left, when he was left for dead, drug out in the city and left for dead. If these events are, are, were mentioned, and they probably were, we have no reason to believe they weren't, Paul understood them as merely serving as evidence to all that God was doing in the world. The door is open, he said. The nations are coming. It was that joyful reality which forged Paul's worldview, his thought. Don't we need this? As individuals, as churches, we we need this type of thinking. We need this perspective of Paul today. We need to learn from Paul how to keep the economy of God's kingdom ever before us. Reflect for just three seconds, four seconds. What would be your report? Someone asks, what's, what's going on in your life? What's God doing? What's God doing in the world? What's God doing in the church? What would be your report? Make no mistake, there are many things that are disheartening in life and in the world today, especially as it relates to the church in America. There are real, serious, and, and they're nothing to be overlooked or downplayed, at the least. They're serious. They're real. But as difficult as they may be, they say nothing about the beauty, nothing about the power, nothing about the joy of the reality of the kingdom of God. Perseverance in the Christian life, brothers and sisters, for each one of us, it cannot be, it, 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 it will not be sustained in your life on the basis of mere duty. It requires your joy, your delight. And your delight demands understanding all of life in light of God's kingdom. Life is not about you, Christian. Life is not about me, Christian. Life is about the King. And our King is actively at work today. 
accomplishing His kingdom purposes in our lives, yes, in all around the world. God's kingdom activity, we need to hear this, is not meant to be evident among any particular nation today. None. But evident amongst His church throughout all nations today. We should not confuse that church. Notice back in verse 22. It says, Paul strengthened the hearts of the disciples, encouraging them to persevere in light of the fact that through many persecutions, we must enter the kingdom of God. Thanks a lot, Paul. There's a must here, though. Not a maybe. It's a must, not a maybe. We must enter. We must go through. And that must makes clear of two things. It applies both ways. Through many tribulations, we must go through. But through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it makes clear that our perseverance is not ultimately dependent upon us, but upon our King. The one who, for the joy set before Him, persevered. He endured the cross. And the one who is seated securely at the right hand of the Father. A few months back, I'm, I'm intentionally quoting Tim Keller because I loved him as a just a thought thinker. He affected my life a lot. But also, if you didn't hear, 19th, two days ago, he passed into glory after a pretty significant struggle with cancer. And he was a few months back, maybe about, I don't know, he's been had cancer since 2020. But he was asking an interview as his flesh was failing, um, how he was processing cancer and the things that were going on in his life. And he said this quote, If Jesus really got up from the grave, if Jesus really walked out of the grave, if the resurrection is true, everything's going to be okay. There it is. Our, our question is belief in that. That's our example. That's our hope. We persevere through because Jesus. You don't persevere through everything because of certain things. My wife doesn't persevere through everything because of me. <laughs> but we can persevere through everything because of Jesus. Like, I don't know where you are this morning, honestly. Maybe it's physical persecution. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's your battle with singleness. Maybe it's the challenges of your marriage. Maybe it's the difficulties of parenting. Maybe it's your personal struggle with sin. Or it's just the uncertainty and the weight of life and living in this life. Wherever it lands in your lap this morning, if Jesus truly got up from the grave, believer, it's going to be okay. If Jesus really rose again, if Jesus really ascended into glory, it will be okay. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
So we do so in light of the gospel of grace. We do so with clarity, clear about the idols of our heart and our need for Jesus to be the center of our worship. We do so trusting in the Lord Jesus and walking with Him. And we do that with joy. Because of God's grace, we persevere with joy because of the certainty of God's kingdom. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for this text. It was a long one. God, we thank You for the life of Paul. We thank You for the examples You give us. But let us not miss that Paul's not pointing to himself. <laughs> he tells Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. So the endurance, the perseverance we see in Paul is merely a shadow and a response to the fact that we serve a God who sent His very Son that He might persevere on our behalf. The King of glory stepped down to live in this world where He was rejected, an outcast, and eventually nailed upon a cross as an innocent man to die for our sin and wickedness, for our idolatrous hearts. But yet He did not stay dead. He rose again, demonstrating that the full weight of His kingdom rests in His life, His death, His resurrection. So God, I, I feel with my brothers and sisters this morning, I have a heart that runs all over the places, I have a heart that tends to look at the world today and distrust you, distrust your kingdom reality. Father, forgive me. Remind me again that Jesus got up. And then in all that's going on in my life, I can persevere. For you will rescue us from all things because you have rescued us from the grave, from our sin. So Jesus, as we even sing this last song, this is a question of sight. This is a question of where are we looking? What are we beholding? We want to behold Jesus. Let us do that now as we sing. In your name we pray. Amen.